Greetings, heavy metal fans. This is Chris Caffrey from Spirits of Fire, and you are listening to Focus on Metal, so crank it up. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, ready to deliver your weekly dose of Focus on Metal. Back to the double header of guests this week as we welcome guitarist Chris Caffrey to the show and also a returning guest, former Aussie bassist Phil Susan, who now has the unenviable task of uh, filling the shoes of Jimmy Bain in uh, Last in Line. So yeah, a few weeks ago when we said we would have another person on for uh, Last in Line, when we talked to Andrew Freeman... We were talking about Phil Susan, so we'll be uh, doing that on the second half of the show this week. But first up, again, we've got uh, guitarist Chris Caffrey. And I remember that way back at the beginning of the show, I had tried to get Chris Caffrey to come on. We exchanged a lot of emails, but uh, never quite put that one together. But uh, now with the uh, release of Spirits of Fire, we're able to get Chris on the show. And if you're wondering what the heck Spirits of Fire is, you can essentially call it a classic Priest Meets Savatage. It's another project slash band that was put together by Frontiers, and it features Tim Ripper Owens, and uh, he'll be uh, joining us in the next week or two uh, on vocals. Chris Caffrey, obviously on guitar. Chris playing with uh, Savatage as well as TSO. Steve DiGiorgio from uh, Testament and Death. And uh, Mark Zonder, who has been with uh, Fate's Warning as well as Warlords. And all these guys were under the uh, auspices of producer Roy Z, who, of course, has done great stuff with uh, Dickinson and Halford and, and all kinds of great metal. So why don't I roll a track from the uh, brand new Spirits of Fire release via Frontiers Records. And then we'll go right into Richie's chat with Chris Caffrey talking all about Spirits of Fire Everything else that Chris is up to, including uh, a good chunk about what's going on with TSO.
Hey Chris, Richie from Focus on Metal. So, one of the things I did before Christmas, um, I brought my eight-year-old son to see his first arena rock show, and it was you guys in uh, in Worcester in the Palladium. Oh wow! Okay. And um, it was amazing. I'd never actually seen you guys play, and I I, I never look at set lists. I'm a, I'm a bit of a dinosaur. I don't look at set lists uh, before a show, so I didn't realise that you played for so long. How how much rehearsal goes into that? Like, w- when would you start rehearsing before the tour? Well, basically what happens is, um, you know, the, the musical directors, which is mainly, you know, Al Petrelli and Derek, they'll they'll get together with, you know, the O'Neill family and Oliver and when the set list is being put together for the tour and the production, and they'll come up with, you know, the options of what it is that we may need to be playing. And a lot of times around, like, I would say the middle of September will get, you know, set lists that these are the songs that we want everybody to know. And it, it usually comes out to be around like 30 or 35 songs that we will bring into rehearsal just in our, you know, in our knowledge that we'll know how to play if we're going to be going on the list. And then we'll get to rehearsals, which usually starts right around, you know, if, if we're rehearsing for a tour that begins on November 14th like this year we'll be going out to omaha where we usually have the band start around october 29th so we're there a little bit over two weeks before the very first show and then when we get there we'll start you know with a basic list of what they think is going to make the show and then from there you know within about five days we would have played enough to where we're going to you know the the actual list of what's going to be complete on stage makes it through and then within the end of the first week, we start going to the stage and then we spend about another week in that place, rehearsing the show and getting all the production together. And then, you know, the, the, uh, for the East coast, we always start in a, a different city than when we're rehearsing the West coast always starts their tour in that exact same arena. So we'll be packing up and leaving. And the night before the tour starts, we'll rehearse again, another basic kind of like production and dress rehearsal sort of thing. And it starts. So, I mean, I I'd say the process that we usually spend is about a month and a half. And that gives you the time to, to learn your songs. And then the, the two full weeks of us rehearsing it together. Mm-hmm. But the, um, the shows and the lighting and a lot of that stuff, I mean, that stuff is being prepared all year long. Yeah. So when you're saying you're rehearsing with the band, does that include all of the singers in the beginning or is it just the musicians? Um, what usually happens is it's just the musicians for the first few days. I mean, sometimes there'll be a singer out there a little bit early if they, if they want to have somebody that can run through everything with us, but it, it basically starts in the beginning with just the band, but that's not a long period of time. Like I said, that's, that's usually about the first three or four days where we just start beating through the set list. Cause a lot of things we have to do and we do it mostly with the East coast band is we'll be recording the songs that will be, um, getting the beginnings and the endings to marry the lights you know, so for the simpy code. So we'll go into the rooms and we'll be recording things for production too. So that kind of stuff we don't need the singers for. Hmm. So has it gotten easy for you to know where to stand on the stage because of all the pyro? <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, we actually, we, we do get specific pyro rehearsals and demonstrations and we know where everything is i mean in the 20 years that i've been doing this i i I think that maybe there's been one or two times where where i think there was what you would say is a is a close call and and that's you know that's just something that we've been able to avoid nobody's ever gotten hurt i mean it's just a matter of 
we all know where they come. We all know what's the place that's safe and not safe. And the pyro company itself, I mean, they not only turn the stuff on and off, but they are there watching. And if anybody gets into a, a point where they think it might even become slightly a risk, they don't operate that particular thing and it never goes off. So, I mean, there it, it's very well plan with the pyro we've 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 never had anybody hurt and everybody usually is pretty aware of where they are you know and and where they have to be Mm, i just got one more question about tso chris um when when did you realize that show had legs that it wasn't just a a, it was just going to be like you've been said you've been doing it now for 20 years so was there one particular tour where you went wow this thing actually might go on for a long time I mean, I think for me, being a person that always speaks to the audience on stage, I mean, besides the obvious facts that it just, you know, in the, in the beginning, that every year the the amount of shows we were doing increased, the amount of tickets we were selling increased, and then the amount of times a day we were doing shows increased. Besides that, obviously, you know, the things you just saw from the, the facts due to numbers and just how it was going there, I would speak to the crowds and I would say, well, how many of you have never seen us before? And a lot of the times, and even still now, half of the people in that audience will raise their hand as the people that have never seen the band. So as much as we have the people that return and come back to see us over and over again with their families, there's still a bunch of people that are getting their very first DSO show ever, you know, 20 years later, which is pretty amazing. But when you think about, you know, the fact that we've played for you know over 15 million people in in the states and you look at the fact that there's 300 million people in this country you know the, you you know that there's definitely people that have not seen you before so i mean the legs come in the fact that just every year it turns around and, and more and more people want to see it and the show just has a lot of uh things that are, are worth people coming out to see for the not only the very first time, but again, I mean, it's a, it's a really entertaining show from, from start to finish. And it, it goes through a lot of different emotions, but it has a lot of different, you know, things production wise and, and, and musician wise that just make it different and special. Mm. I, th- I think when I saw you, Chris, that weekend, I think you played two shows on the Friday, two shows on the Saturday and two shows on the Sunday. And they were all two yeah. and a half and they were all two and a half hours long. That ha- That's tough going. <laughs> Yeah, it's not the easiest thing in the world. I mean, I still we've been home from the tour since I got home New Year's Eve, and I I started New Year's Day until now. I've I've not had a day where I've missed going to the gym. You know, I just <laughs> always keep myself. It's crazy, but I keep myself in shape. That schedule is not easy, and the thing is, when you you get into it, you get to those long weekends, and that's the time when you really need to to take care of yourself off of the stage you, we rest all the time and, and you know we get out there and it's it's a, a difficult thing but everybody's able to make it through because we all know what our you know what our bodies can handle but yeah I mean, when you're doing five hours a day three days in a row and and that week too we had thanksgiving day off but we also played two on that wednesday so we were doing you know eight shows in those five days and, and you just really have to keep yourself you know, physically ready for that because it it is a lot. I mean, and we, we don't want any one show to see us any different than another one. So we just make sure that everybody gets the same performance, but you, you have to take care of yourself and then make it so that you can do that for everybody. Yeah. So, so let, let's talk about the Spirits of Fire record. Um, I, the first question I'm going to ask is how, how do you fit it in with all this going on? 
<laughs> well, you know, that was one that I actually had in the time to write at home. I was working on my next solo record, the the one that I had called Jester's Court, and I'd gotten actually contacted from Frontiers about the possibility of doing a record with Ripper, which was really exciting for me because he's been a good friend of mine and I've worked a lot with him in the past, but we never actually did a full record together. So I just started adding in writing for that in with the writing for my own stuff. So I was kind of combining two things at once and, you know, specifically not writing a bunch of stuff and you're just choosing one for the other. I was writing things that I said, these are going to be ones for spirits and stuff like that. But I mean, it was, it wasn't too difficult. I had, you know, about 14 songs that I'd, I'd thrown it at Ripper in the beginning, and he started doing some lyrics and the melodies on him. And there was a time when he was very busy, and he just asked me if I could get some ideas for lyrics and melodies on some of the stuff he hadn't gotten to. I think like four of the songs on the record have um, my music and my lyrics and melodies on it. And we just, you know, we all combined the work in that we could we could do. And, and Roy had written some stuff with Ripper, and and the thing just came together. I mean, it wasn't a short recording period. I think between when I started writing and when we actually finished it, it was it was over a year and a half that it took to get the whole thing together. But, you know, in the end, I think it came out really, really cool. And, and I think kids are going to really enjoy this record because I think if you, you hear the first couple songs that they put out in, in videos and, and on the Internet, and they, you know, a lot of times you might think that that's what that whole record is going to sound like. And it definitely does not sound like any one or two songs through mm -hmm. that whole entire record. You have to listen to that whole record to hear what's there. Mm. Now, one of the records you worked on with Ripper was his solo album, uh, Play My Game, that's 10 years old this year. Um, did you even talk to Ripper back then about maybe doing something someday? Yeah, no, we'd, we'd spoken about that. You know, if it wasn't going to be doing more with him, it was going to be trying to put something together. And like I said, it was just a matter of finding, I think, the right, time and you know frontiers have put the right opportunity together it's just amazing that you know you, when you said that number i think that that was 10 years ago how time has actually been flying out here i don't remember <laughs> what the exact what the exact tour date was that um as far as the year goes when i when i did the, the tour with him in europe and reopened for heaven and hell but i'd imagine maybe that might even be you know, nine years ago, if that record was 10 and it's just, it's just crazy how time flies by. But, you know, I, I had definitely spoken to him about doing something and we always wanted to. So it was good to have the opportunity. Now it's just going to be a matter of, you know, making sure we can put it together to get the thing to do some live dates. You know, he's, he's got a lot of stuff going on. It's pretty obvious as to when I can't tour live, you know, if TSO is playing, I'm not available. That's pretty <laughs> much what, what goes on with me. But I mean, other other stuff, I will adjust my schedule to, to make something that I feel is a priority work over, you know, one thing or another. But the only, the only one that definitely does not ever have anything that gets a priority over is, is anything that's TSO or sabotage related. Yeah. So, so Chris, Frontiers are they're known now for getting all these projects together. Um, had they ever approached you before this one with, with a project and you just couldn't do it? No, actually, I never was, and it wasn't them, but I had been approached about some of the other project stuff before, and a lot of the times I was just kind of like, I don't know if I wanted to be involved with the, the quote-unquote project thing, but um, I think it was just the fact that Ripper was such a good friend and that we had you know, worked together and wanted to work again that I, you know, I opened my eyes to this as something that I thought was not only going to be 
being the opportunity to make a good record, but I thought it was going to be a lot of fun for me just because of the connection I had. And, you know, I always call it the Z factor. because It's like Roy Z. It was one of my favorite, you know, as far as people that I'd listen to his work, he did a lot of my favorite records with people that had great careers in other bands, but then put out these records with Roy, which I thought were always as strong as them. So like when Dickinson did a record with Roy or when, um, Rob Halford did. I just thought that those those records were very strong, and they reached levels kind of near what they'd done before with those bands in the past. So I, I just saw something about this that the all around really fit me as something that was going to be fun to do, and 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 something I, that I, I thought I was going to enjoy in, in the end, and, and it did. I mean, I love listening to this record. I think it's a lot of fun. Mm. Now, now Roy, Roy is a great guitar player in his own right. I think he played the. I think he played all the guitars on uh, one of Dickinson's solo records. Did he have a lot of input into y- your playing on it, or did he just leave you alone? Um, he pretty much left me alone on it. He, um, you know, on the songs that he'd written, you know, he went and, and did his stuff and then recorded everything over again with him. There was a sound he actually liked that I had with my guitars that he wanted on everything. And he heard that in particular first on my solo records because I... I'd sent um, the rhythm guitars for this, the stuff on the Spirits record, and I'd only had sent double tracks for it. I didn't have, like, multiples over that. And I was doing my solo records, which I always do the four tracks with. And a lot of times when I'm doing records for other people, they never ask for that four. So I just handed Roy the two and figured, you know, that's going to be what he would need. But in the end, he listened to some of my mixes and my record. He's like, what are you doing with your guitars? And I told him, and I was adding in these couple of extra tracks, and he goes, I need them <laughs> on everything. <laughs> so, you know, he, he basically sent me back to do that. And, and he also had, like, the ideas of where he wanted me to um to put in a track of, of, of guitars that were just kind of like, um, I, forget, I forget the exact word that he used to describe it, but it, it was kind of... And I, I still keep trying to think of this word, but it's just a, a track that you would do like it's a lead track. You know, you would play over just adding things in the end. And that um, is something that I did where you, where you just go through and you make noise and slides and little bits and pieces. I think that's the thing that, more than anything, that he asked me to add to every song just so he had some stuff to put little noises and sounds in, in, in places that he thought might have missed them. Hmm. So, Chris, did you have any say in the rhythm section on the album at all? Um, yeah, I did. I mean, it, but I didn't really need to make that much of a say. I, I, I know when I basically recorded all of my guitars first, and they were on the tracks, and then, then uh, Zonder had a chance to go do his drums. It was only a few times when I listened to what he did when I thought, you know, it might have needed to be just a little bit maybe straighter or a different type of beat to click in with the riffs, you know, something that he might have went a little bit, I don't know, I don't want to say the words more prog, and I would have went a little more metal, but I, I think it was just, just a couple spots. But for the most part, those guys did what they did, and I really didn't have to to influence that too much. I wanted to let them, you know, do their drums and bass the way they wanted to do it. There was only a few times where I turned around and I was specific parts that I thought would you know would be better in the song in in a one type of beat than another, but I I, I didn't really press him too much on it. Mm. And and how hands on were the Frontiers guys in 
the sound of the record? Did they more or less leave you guys alone and then you handed it in? Yeah, they didn't. They left us alone basically from the second that we said we were going to do it till it was all said and done. I mean, they just had told us um, more than anything that they wanted something that was going to have an influence of, you know, kind of like the bands that we were in. And so they wanted something that was maybe, you know, a little sabotage or a little Judas Priest-like. So that's not necessarily what we were trying to do. They, they were just saying, you know, if you guys could, you know, put an influence together of the bands you had been in. And, and I think that also there was something that they never had on that label. You know, there a lot of those records there. I mean, there's some records that could be called hard rock or metal, but I don't think they really had one that was as heavy metal as this one in the way it is. They didn't have a band like Spirits of Fire. And those guys are, you know, they're they're all big Priest and Sabotage fans. They love that kind of music. So I think they were just excited about getting, you know, something a little bit different to the label. And I was I was happy to do it for them because it, it to me, what they do bringing these bands and artists together is, is really special because the industry doesn't work like it used to. I mean, they, they used to start off and find musicians and bands and spend millions and millions of dollars get people together to make music. And nowadays it's, you know, it's not even close to what it used to be. So to have a label like Frontier that's able to put the money up to get people to work together and make music, to me, it's, it's a great thing. And I'm, and I'm happy to see, you know, a lot of the stuff that comes out that I know never would have happened unless they did what they did. Hmm. I've, had, um, I've had a lot of musicians on that have worked with Frontiers and they said exactly what you just said that there is no other labels out there that these are the guys that are willing to put the money together and get the projects out I think one of the gripes that I think a lot of fans have is uh, they don't get the opportunity to see this stuff live though yeah I think that that comes down to a lot of what everybody's doing outside of that to make money and to have their lives go on and to get everybody together to do that at that point. If you're putting together four people that are in four different bands, they need to have their teams together when it's not going to affect them. You know, and, and you know, when musicians are working to pay their living, it's, it's, it's one of these things where it might be difficult to time it. I think with this one, what the way I'm going to kind of gauge that is I want to see how the fans are reacting to this record, what their demand is. And if there's a big fan demand to see this record, then I, I believe I'm going to have a lot more chance to put it together with as far as going through the festivals and then seeing how I can work around, you know, what Ripper's schedule is and, and everybody else's as far as what their tours are. You know, and maybe we'll be lucky enough to find a time when there's like a festival over a weekend where Testament or where Ripper's doing something and, and on a Friday and on a Saturday, nobody's doing anything. And then you talk to the festival and say, hey, do you want Spirits of Fire on this date? And then they just got to deal with flying in a few people. And, and, you know, I'd like at that point, you know, just to have the band get a chance to do some rehearsing and, and know what we're going to do live if we had to do a set. And, um, go out there and play. I mean, everybody's pros. We don't really need to have a ton of, of rehearsal dates or live shows to make something happen. I think everybody would be able to get together and play and, and, and do the thing that needs to be done and just kind of get it off the ground. And I think that's going to be the way to judge this thing is, is basically by seeing how the fans are going to be like, hey, we want to see this band and, and go from there. Mm. I, I think, Chris, the likelihood is, though, that you might have to travel outside the U.S. to get to get 
festival shows. But I think oh, that- absolutely that that I do know. I'm not <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that I I uh, I know that from the start. There's there's only a few festivals in the states, and I mean there's that number starting to grow. But the ones I'm talking about, yeah, would be the ones that would might be out of Germany or South America or, you know, Holland or Greece or, or somewhere like that where they say, Hey, you know, they, cause they'll get to a lot of these festivals when they get going and, and they're filling out their schedules. There might be so many other festivals going on in that one weekend that they might still be in need of some bands. And if they're trying to fill out their roster and they got a day when they're, they're still looking for somebody that make it, they may consider special and they'd be like, Hey, you know, let's, throw this band on that and see if we can get them here and if we're lucky enough to um to have a day when like i said maybe rippers doing something with the the do thing or 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 the testaments out there or something like that we can kind of try to marry those two things together if it makes things easier but like i said we'll just see what happens in time and then you know if we we get it out there and that's working and there's a tour we could jump onto we could do that it's just gonna you know it's going to be a matter of time to see how that goes. I think the thing has potential to, to go out and play and the guys in the band want to do it. So we'll, we'll just see what happens. Mm. I think the other way you could do it, Chris, is maybe on a cruise. Yeah, they're around. Definitely. That's, that's definitely true too. So we're like I said, once the record gets out and everybody gets a chance to have it and the fans get to talk about it and the press, your press gets out there and everybody sees it. Then I think in time it'll develop when they say, Hey, we want to get this band on the thing plus it's like when you look at the fact of what the set list could be we could have a 10 song set that has you know six songs from the album but it could also have something at a ripper's catalog out of mine at a at a steve's and at a out of mark so it's like we could throw in you know four tunes on top of that would, would make it a really cool set to listen to along with the things on our album so yeah i, I don't think it's going to be a problem getting the shows but we just don't have anything mm-hmm. booked right at this second yeah, yeah. So, w- just one more question about the about the record. Uh, what was the toughest song to write for it? Huh. You know, I don't even really think any of these were that tough to write for. I think I just was in a good frame of mind with writing this. I think so. They all pretty much kind of wrote the same way. I, I don't think that um, that any of them were necessarily that. Tough for me. I mean, a song like Temple of the Soul, where I had to to add in the lyrics and melodies, and I think you know something like that might add a little bit of a challenge to me. But since I've done my solo records, I've I've gotten a lot of experience with writing vocals and lyrics, so that kind of part of writing has become fun for me. So you know, it was maybe a challenge to get something that I thought that Ripper was going to really want to enjoy and sing as a vocalist, and I think that was probably to me one of the things that I thought was the most i don't even know what the words rewarding but was cool that when i finished you know these songs with me doing the um the lyrics and melodies that when he went to sing them he sang what i sent him so i was like wow that's that's pretty cool he liked what i did so i think that um was something that was pretty cool for me to know that ripper was was really into what i did as a vocalist when he went to record his parts Mm. can i just ask you one question uh chris about paul o'neill um, yeah. What did you learn from him about constructing and writing songs? Is the one thing you can point out and say, yeah, I learned that from him? I mean, there was a lot of things that I learned from Paul. I It, it could go through every form of what you have. Lyrically, I think this probably, I would say I was the most influenced lyrically 
I pull all the line over and everything, you know, sometimes that is, is like politically perfect or something like that. Because Paul really, you know, he was the master of, of, of writing things that, uh, you know, that, that basically, I don't know what the word is. He, he wrote for everybody, but lyrically, that was the one thing that he definitely all the way around influenced me on because he, he sat there one day and he said, you know, of course he goes, anybody can write a, car, a song about a car or a girl. He said, but it's really difficult to write a song that could change everybody's life. And that's when he, he was talking about songs like Believe and, and, and things like that, when people hear them and your lyrics will really take a chance to influence them and make them you know, feel better. And like with the TSO lyrics, when we have a song like Ornament, when you go play TSO live and there's the crowd there and you see that there's people crying, I mean... You, you realize that yes, there are besides the, what was going on in the story with that father having his girl away from him for Christmas. There's people in the audience who just might have had a really close member of their family pass away within that year, or had one of their family members that's that's overseas in the service or something like that. So he was just always writing lyrically things that were were touching people and making people grow together along with the fact of really making people think and, and putting a lot of thought and, and education and history into his lyrics. Cause he was a very, very, very intelligent man. I mean, we'd be in working on guitar solos and he would have two books in front of him on one side and he'd have three different newspapers in front of him on the other side and a stack of magazines on the other side. And he'd be reading through these and I'd be playing a solo with, with Dave Whitman or working on some guitar parts and I'd be like, <laughs> How was that, Paul? And he'd be like, wait, what? How was what? <laughs> he's like <laughs> reading through them. And he'd be like, okay, wait, wait, hold on. Okay, Dave, play that so I can hear. So he'd be sitting there, you know, with his head buried deep inside, you know, a bunch of different things he was reading about while we were working. And he was just always building that, you know, that statement that he would say that knowledge is power. And it's like he would just want to, you know, have the information. And, you know, as far as musically went, he really had a bunch of different things experience wise for me as a guitar player with, you know, the things he'd worked with, whether it was for hours or whatever, on how to record, you know, certain rhythms some ways. And he had a technique on acoustic guitars that was really, really cool on how to eliminate when your hand squeaks, when it moves on the strings. And it was the distinct technique that he uses. And I don't even want to tell everybody this about the cheat on it, but there was something what we did that only worked if you did it to make their hands so that when they moved, they didn't have that squeaky noise. And, and you know, he would do things with, with certain little clean guitar parts that would bring out the picking in areas that you wouldn't even notice why you heard the, the string hitting a pick better in a distorted part, but it was because of a track that was added to a whole entire song playing, you know, a, a clean little guitar part on a Telecaster with really thick strings where you really only heard the picking. So there was, you know, a lot of different things that he, he taught me about that, you know, and, and ways of arranging songs. And he always loved to have in the longer songs, he always loved to have an ending of the song that was just like a driving guitar riff. You know, that, that was one of the, Paul O'Neill trademark things like he would he would love to have something like 24 hours ago when when Johnny's bass part wrote out that song you know just something that does that at the very end of a song and we did that for a lot of songs like Blackjack Jack and I put that on a lot of my solo stuff too where you just have 
that part at the end of the song that's distinctly different from the entire song, <laughs> but sits there at the end. Yeah. So, so Chris, final question for me. You said you've been doing TSO now for 20 years. Um, does that mean you've been able to skip NAM? <laughs> yeah, actually, you know what? I skipped NAM, I, I think, um, the last time I went there was probably like, oh, wow, might have been 10 years. It might have been 10 years because we started doing spring TSO tours for the Beethoven thing and we were rehearsing them leaving at the end of January and going, you know, starting in February and the last thing you want to do when you just got off a long tour is, is to go out and, and take a trip and then we had a, a sabotage European tour that that we went straight from the last winter tour so in, in Buffalo to New Year's Eve and in Germany at Brandenburg Gates and then we went to England and rehearsed for the sabotage European tour so you know, we my chance to play that was was eliminating a lot, and then I actually there was um a group around here with a a, a guy named Jimmy Stur who has an orchestra that's won eighteen Grammys, and he had some of his own cruise trips going out that he wanted to be to be a special guest, and always wound up at the same time as Nam. And I think this year was uh was the same thing, but I I turned down Jimmy's boat and Nam because I just didn't feel like <laughs> going anywhere. I was like I was resting. I'm done. I'm not. I'm not moving right now. So I, I took the time off from doing that. I don't want to get back to them. I saw a lot of things that were pretty cool going on there this year, and, and there was a lot of different jams and things. I mean, I had a chance to play a few times out here on the East Coast with the Randy Rose Remembered stuff, and that's always a lot of fun to me. And, and that's something I can always plan whenever I go there. And then I know uh, David Z's brother Paulie puts on those jam nights, and he kind of moved that to a a bigger level out there this year, but you know, I'd, I'd like to get back out there again. It's like, I, I just never was the guy that was, uh, you know, looking for endorsements or anything else like that. Cause like I tend to play like 12 different guitars on tour and they're all from different companies. And, and I found at one time in the past when I tried to make that exclusive with one company that it's just not the smartest thing to do. I mean, for me anyway, cause I just have too many other ones that I like playing and, and I don't want to upset anybody by, making it think like I'm cheating on him. By using <laughs> yep. You use the Les Paul. You, how dare you use that Les Paul? And I'm like, oh, I don't have to tell you, but the Les Paul sounded better in the song we were playing and the guitar you made for me, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, Chris. That's how dare I used it. Yeah, when it, when it, I had a guitarist who was at Nam, who was at Nam last weekend. He called me in the middle of last week and he said, one of the, the worst thing about going to Nam is you're just sick of talking about yourself after three or four days. Yeah, I think that, you know, you trying to explain what you're doing, what you're going to do, what you want to do. I mean, I would go out there and, you know, you can, I think the word we always said, you'd get nammed out, you know, because after a few days of it, it's just, it's a lot. There's a lot of talk and a lot of hanging out and, um, you know, it goes from the days into the evening and, it's just a matter. I think the thing with Nam is you really just got to show up there with a goal. Like what? This is what I want to accomplish out of Nam. I want to see these people, and I want to get this done. And as long as you get that done, everything else you just kind of take, you know, with with whatever you can get, and just try to be be out there and do what you can do. But it's it's a lot. I mean, it's it's so many people. There's thousands of people there of all different kinds of parts of the music business and the fans and everybody else. And you just have to really. Like I say, I think the best thing to do is have a plan. If I'm not playing in January next year, I, I might finally make a trip back out there and, and uh, just go out again. 
gypsy, I'll probably get there and be like, all right, I'm not going to do this for another five years. I might go here next year and, and, and see what it's like to get back out there. But, but who knows me? You know, maybe, maybe there'll be something going on with spirits at that time or something else. And I won't be able to go. Yeah. So, so Chris, before I leave you go, um, do you want to give out all the social media sites where people can get in touch with you or the band? Yeah, I mean, right now the best place to look is Spirits of Fire on the Facebook page, and that's just listed as Spirits of Fire. You can search it and find it. And I have Chris Caffrey music on Facebook. I mean, I have Chris Caffrey which is my website. They're actually part of um, the massive amount of people in my life that have passed away in the last few years. He was, was someone that a year ago that uh, I'd lost to, and it, it was just a I'm working with this twin brother now as, as far as getting all the you know, the controls and passwords and everything rerouted from my website. But it's like, I had, you know, over 10 years of working with, you know, I did on my, my site. So Chris is there, but the Chris Caffrey music on Facebook is a place now where I just kind of put out most of my information. And then if I link anything through the web stores on my site, I'll talk about it there. So that's usually the safest place to go for now to get all the information. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, it was no problem at all to reschedule. And thank you very much for the interview. No no problem, Chris. And uh, hopefully I'll see you out there with the band. Yeah, me too. We'll, yeah. we'll get that. I'll get that going. Like I said, let me just see what everybody says as far as how they like it. And then I can start to push things from there and, and get Ripper out of his crazy schedule. <laughs> all right, Chris. You know, he's, he's in the three tremors this year. Next year to be like the four barbers. It's insane. And that, yeah, it, it's a little bit much. I don't think he knew that this stuff was going to be coming out at the same time. I think he even had another record with Rui Sarzo and, and James Kotek that they talked about releasing February 2. And, mm. you know, hopefully people will uh, will like this one and it could rise above the, the title of just being a project and maybe it can turn into something that has a cool future to it. So we'll see what happens. Hope so, Chris. Well, I'll leave you go and have a good rest of the day. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you. All right, Bye. take care. Bye. All right, big thanks once again to Chris Caffrey for taking a little bit of time out to talk to Richie all about uh, not only TSO and a lot of stuff there, but also about the brand new project Spirits of Fire. And of course, you'll hear more about that coming up in the next few weeks as we talk to Ripper Owens as well. But uh, then also everything else that Chris has been involved with, obviously a very, very busy guy. And speaking of busy guys, our next guest is Phil Susan. We had Phil on the show back on episode 53. That's right. An episode called, fittingly enough, Focus on Phil Susan. Whole hour of uh, nothing but Phil. And if you want to, you can head up to focusonmetal.net, go to the episodes page, scroll down to episode 53, and you can either download or stream that episode. But this week, Phil is on the show to talk all about Last in Line 2. As the newest member of Last in Line, Phil definitely has an interesting perspective on the band and the writing process and dynamics and all that good stuff. So uh, I think you're going to enjoy this one. So why don't we uh, roll the track Electrified off of Last in Line 2 and then go into Richie's chat with Phil Susan. Hi, this is Phil Susan, and you are listening to Focus on Metal. Only a fool would take his own life Let it be ruled by sickness and strife A life electric, never so bright Come break the mold or give up the fight I have the power in absence of pride Call me a savior, 
Hello. Is that Phil? Hello. Phil, good morning. Yes, good How morning. Are, you played a gig in uh, the Tupelo Music Hall about a year and a half ago, and uh, I was able to meet you guys. I had my eight-year-old son with me. Oh, okay. So, um, Just trying to remember, because I do remember that gig, yeah. Yeah, and um, I interviewed Andrew Freeman just before Christmas, and uh-huh. uh, I was talking to him about it, and my my son fell asleep in the middle of Holy Diver on my lap. <laughs> well, we need to turn it up a bit. <laughs> so I've I've only got about twenty twenty five minutes with you, Phil. I know you got a run run of interviews. So one of the first things I want to address up front is um, and the timing couldn't have been worse for you guys. You you have to deal with the fallout from Pledge Music, right? Um, that has to be incredibly difficult for you guys because because of the timing. Uh, yeah, it couldn't have been a worse pick. I mean, it really, uh, you know, for the to the amount of time that people have had success working with pledge campaigns, and for this to happen with us was um, was really, you know, pouring a lot of water on the fire for us. So, um, and I got very, uh, I rolled up my sleeves and got very actively involved in the whole process. As far as, uh, you know, mainly myself, Vinny, and uh, we, we we tried to play. Uh, it, it, Get, you know, put our heads together and see how we could, how we could turn this into a good situation. Mm. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm a firm, firm believer in that. Uh, you know, situations themselves are not necessarily a, a bad thing. It's how you deal with them. And so, I try to find the. Uh, I hate to use the metaphor, but to, a way to make lemonade out of the lemons. So. Mm. You, you, you definitely do seem to be upfront in responding to people. I, I think. On social media, it is you guys that are responding to the questions. It's not like a third party. No, it's not. And if we did leave it to a third party, they just have a blanket statement and they basically say, well, we're trying to get things together and we'll let you know and we hope everything's going to be this and that and the other. And, uh, you know, they use the word intend, intend, which to me is a, is a terrible red flag. Anytime I hear somebody say they intend to do something, it means they're probably not going to, but that they want, you know, people to know that they tried. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a pre-admission of, of failure, and so the minute they said we heard something about that about you know two two weeks or, or so before this announcement came out, I, I said to the guys, I said, "This scares the shit out of me. This word, this word verbiage here," and um, and that's exactly what ended up happening. So yeah, what we did is we I don't want to get into too many details because we don't mm-hmm. have too much time and it's all been written. But what I said is I said let's let's, let's get to people let's let's get the message to people that we're there with them. And the most important thing is our fans. The most important thing is we can always work around the sale of the merchandise. We can always work around all of the sale of the CDs and albums. What we can't do is is is, is drop our fans. If they put money down, we don't want them to lose money. Hmm. That was the most important thing. Yeah, yeah. And then afterwards, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll we'll regather and we'll regroup, and uh, maybe we can even do this simultaneously, which is kind of what we did. And um, the one fortunate thing with us is we only used Pledge as, a, as to collect payments. They didn't have any of our merchandise. They weren't going to procure it. They weren't going to do anything. We have a separate procurement center. So all they were doing was handling the payments and holding the money. Eventually, they would pass the money on to uh, the procurement center. And the procurement center would send products out. Hmm. Uh, so in this case, what we did is we immediately told the procurement center, "Hold on, just hold everything, don't do anything. Uh, let's try to get our fans their money back." And we gave them instructions on how to do that. You know, then we can uh, we can figure it out on the back end. We've already set up a new payments 
uh, portal through our own website. So uh, I, we really didn't need to work with Pledge, I'll be honest with you. Mm. I, I, I've had people, you know, I, I put it out there that I was talking to you and a lot of the people were saying, ask Phil about what's happening with Pledge. There's just a lot of people out there that are in limbo. Well, you know, we've put up notices, we've sent emails out, we've put them, put them on Facebook, we've put them on our own site. Um, I've been sitting there when I have time answering in as much detail as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. Um, but the bottom line is this, you know, Pledge don't, they're a big company. They don't get a credit card payment and then get the money and run to the bank and deposit it and then take it out and put it in a mattress. It's not how it works. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have merchant services, you have a payments processor in between you and the credit card company. And that payments processor has holds the funds. So basically, now that they've canceled the campaign, or at least we've canceled our campaign, what we're telling people is call Pledge, tell them, as a, register a note with them, say, as I want a refund because you've canceled the, the, uh, the campaign. They'll send you a blanket email of acknowledgement back saying, we've received your communication, we're trying hard to do this, blah, blah, blah. That doesn't matter. At least it's blogged. And then call your credit card company and say, they've canceled the campaign. We've registered. We want, we've asked for a refund. And at this point, we want to, um, uh, we would like to raise what credit card companies call a dispute with the charge. The credit card company will refund your money immediately and then take it, take it upon themselves to, to resolve it, um, which can take, you know, four or six weeks or something, but it'll come back fine. I mean, mm. you know, there is, there is protection to the purchaser. That's why people use credit cards. And the idea is that you're not going to get your product. People are saying, should I just wait until I get something from Pledge? They're not going to get anything from Pledge. Pledge doesn't have anything. And they, they never had the merchandise. They never had anything. All they did was handle the, pro, the payments. So they will not receive anything. Just go ahead, cancel it, call the credit card company, get your money back. Mm-hmm. And then we will, you know, we're, we're going through a separate process to, to re-offer all of the things that we were offering before. Okay. All right, Phil. I just want to move on. I don't want to spend half an yeah. hour talking about pledge. Um, no, no, it's not. <laughs> are you still doing rating the Rock Vault? Uh, I am from time to time. Yeah. Um, you know, when it, when it's uh, when I've got a little bit of a window open, and when I like the uh, the other people who are on there, it's a revolving door. So, you know, um, if it's some of my uh, some of my favorite peers i'll make sure that i'll go out there and we'll, we'll do it and i've got the time mm. but just to do it for the sake of doing it no not really yeah just talk about bringing that on the road do you think you'll be able to do that i've been asked to okay i've been asked to I, I, i'll hold on that decision until i have more details yeah 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 obviously <laughs> yeah i know i know um i do want to ask you about playing with Vinny apathy now you've been playing uh-huh. with him for a while and I've talked to a lot of different drummers and a lot of different musicians, and even Vinny says it himself. He's got a certain particular style of drumming. Um, was that easy to lock in with him in the beginning? And could you be able to describe to me what what style he has that's different to some of the other drummers you played with? Certainly, yeah. I mean, that question would have been better put to me about 2004 um, when I first started, you know, working a lot with Vinny. Mm. Um, and we had a project called Big Noise, which was a revolving door. Um, kind of celebrity band that we would go out and play. And, and, and around that time, we started spending quite some time playing together. So I've had a little bit of a, um, a, a training, if you will, um, you know, getting to, to play with any. It, wasn't, it was not unfamiliar territory when I joined the band. Mm-hmm. His style is very um, 
first of all, I'm a, I'm a very big fan of, of, of Vinny's playing. Uh, I think he's one of the most powerful drummers I've ever played with. And I've played with a few. I've been very blessed to play with some fantastic drummers. Mm -hmm. But he differs mm -hmm. in that he's not so much what I would call a groove style of drummer. Um, he is much more of an instrumentalist when it comes to drums. So he's very explosive. Rather than sitting, set, you know, sitting back and playing a groove that you would play around and play with, he's going to start to play uh, actual... He's going to go out. He's going to start playing outside the box. Um, explosive is a very good word to describe. You, you don't really know what he's going to do. And he loves to mess with odd timings. So he'll be playing something and all of a sudden he'll start putting his, his snare on the one and the three and, and, his, and his kick all over the place. And if you're not, if you don't know exactly what part of the roadmap you're on, it's easy for somebody to get lost. And fortunately, I've played with a lot of people who have had a bit of a fusion kind of, uh, you know, sort of, uh, style to their playing. And so I'm used to playing around with odd times and polyrhythms and stuff like that. Um, but... Um, you know, that's what makes it very entertaining and very exciting to play with him. And not to mention the fact that he doesn't, he doesn't let up. I mean, he really is loud and uh, <laughs> you have to be very forceful and dominant hmm. to keep up. Well, one of the things Philly said, I interviewed Vinny once about four, four or five years ago. And one of the things he said to me, and he said, I don't mean to be big headed, but the band, the band play to me. No, that's just another one of his big-headed comments. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I don't know if I, if that's how he wants to see it. Um, I I wouldn't disagree with that. I think to to a certain degree that's that that does happen. I also think that that happens around Vivian's playing as well. I mean, really, we play together. In a way, he he, he reminds me a little bit of Mitch Mitchell. You know, when you when you listen to Hendrix. Hmm. Uh, you know, Noel Redding was the only one who really kept everything in a, a straight line, and Jimmy played all around, and 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 Mitch Mitchell played all around as well, and he reminds me of Mitch in a way because he doesn't, you know, he, he'll always experiment and do something and go out outside and take it in a different direction. So I say this with with uh, with ultimate respect for, for Vinny because I enjoy playing with him tremendously. I think he's one of the most fun drummers I've ever played with. Mm. Um, but I do think that there is a magic that happens when we play live, especially in some of the areas where we improvise a little bit, the, the end of Egypt, for example, where we don't really know what's going to happen. And in that instance, yeah, he, he sometimes does lead everything. Mm. So it's, it's really a lot of fun. Yeah. Phil, did you ever turn around and look at him and say, what, what, what the hell are you doing? Where are you going here? Where's one? Like, did, <laughs> yeah. Did you ever turn around and say, what, what are you playing? What, where are you going with this? Um, a couple of times, you know, he's. I've, I've wondered, you know, he's, he's done a couple of things, and I've, I've said, okay, where's he going with this? <laughs> and, um, but it's a little bit like if you just play along through it, eventually you'll find out what he's doing. Hmm. And it now gets to the point where I can sort of anticipate what he's going to do. You know, to me, the magic of playing in a, in a rhythm section with somebody that you uh, have gelled with is that you have a sort of... Um, very, uh, I don't know what it is. It's a, it's almost a sixth sense where you you sort of know what they're going to do by the way that they set it up. And uh, I had this with Randy Castillo. I've had this with several drummers, but I also have, I'm, I'm starting to get that with Vinny. So the minute he starts doing something, I sort of know where he's going with it. Mm -hmm. uh, but occasionally he does surprise me, you know. <laughs> okay. 
Um, now, you, you've known Vinny a long time. I, you know, I think you've known Andrew through rating the Rock Vault. I don't know whether you knew him before then. But how far, how far back is your relationship with Vivian? Um, I knew Vivian from a long time ago, but I ne- I was never really I never really got to know him that well as a on a personal level. Um, of course, we knew each other since the eighties. Hmm. Uh, but I was actually closer with Jimmy Bain, and I was closer with Vinny for whatever reason. Uh, Vivian, I knew we would always be, always be very polite. Hi, how you doing? Nice, nice to see you. That kind of thing. Uh, had a lot of respect for him. I just never had a chance to play with him until hmm. until now, and uh, and and that's. Uh, that's really quite a tremendous experience as well. Yeah. Now, one of the great things I loved about the first record, and I've said this to Andrew, um, when you when they did the DVD, they had footage of uh, Jeff Pilson's studio and all the bass guitars that he had. Now, mm-hmm. did did you get a chance to uh, to have a look at his Jeff's guitars and maybe play some of them? Like, what sort of collection does he have? Um, he's got a very extensive collection of basses. I mean, he's got all the. The, the standard basis that you would expect somebody to have. He's got the, the fantastic precision. He's got the Spectre. He's got the Rickenbacker. He's got the, uh, the EB3. You know, these, these are signature uh, landmark bass guitars that have all had their um, established their place at some point in time. Um, so that's that's always I always enjoy playing different instruments and seeing how they translate. And, and and the differences of sound, you know, there are, there are some combinations that are out there that just are, are very cool. Um, I think it was the first or the second Ozzy album that Bob recorded with an EB3 into a Marshall guitar amp. I mean, that's a, a legendary bass sound, and you can only get it by doing that. Mm. Andy Fraser, who's one of my favorite bass players, used an EB3, and so there's a, 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 a big soft spot for the EB3. And, uh, you know, Rickenbackers, of course. I mean, McCartney played one. <laughs> you know, <so> many people. <laughs> so, you know, I don't have a Rickenbacker. It's one of the ones I don't have. But, uh, yeah, it's always nice to, 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 to play all these instruments. And it's nice how Jeff has them all sort of hanging on the walls and stuff. I mean, all my stuff is in storage and, you know, locked up. So, hmm. so, so Phil, why do, you, why do you think at this stage that guys with your experience need a producer? Um, well, a producer is, is, is good because it's a third objective ear sometimes. Um, in this particular case, we very much produced this. Um, we did a great deal of production ourselves. I mean, Jeff um, had really not allocated sufficient time. It wasn't his uh, fault. I think he's just a very busy guy, and he maybe figured it was just a question of just recording everything and getting it on tape. Um, what we actually had, we had some very well rehearsed demos. We knew what we were going to record, um, but then all of the overdubs and stuff, uh, a lot of that stuff we sort of did on our own. Um, Viv did some of his guitars with Jeff. He enjoys working with him, and uh, that was about the last thing I think Jeff had the time to do, and then he was gone. Mm. Um, so the rest of the project was done between Andrew at his place, uh, me at my place here, and ultimately, Chris Collier, who makes the album, and he's out in Valencia. So we sort of did this in a very modern way by having three studios and lots of Skype conversations between the three of us, uh, especially and particularly during the mixing process. It was very much a, a group effort. So, you know, I've produced my own stuff. Sometimes I like working with a producer. Sometimes I don't. 
But the thing I, I like about a producer is when they can be objective and they can say, hey, you might not have thought about this, but this is how it's hitting me. Hmm. You know? Um, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a third year. Mm. So did you did you play any of the songs, you, Vinny, and, and Vivian, as a three-piece to get a, a basic track? Or it seems to me that some of it might have been done that way and then it was piecemeal in other, in other, in other areas. No, we did. We 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 recorded together as a, as a, as a, as three people playing. We wanted to get as much of it down, capture as much of that element down uh, in one go. Hmm. Um, after the fact, um, I went and replaced a lot of bass parts because I wasn't happy with the bass sound I was getting, and I I found a different bass sound that I you know experimented with, and then I I managed to find what I like, and so I replaced stuff. But that's okay. I mean, as long as the original vibe was, was, was put down together, remember, everybody feeds off the same energy. So when you get that performance, it's quite an easy, an easy thing to go back and then replace a bass part and not interfere with the performance, the, 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 the chemistry that had occurred at that time. You know, as long as Vinny was, that, that energy was there with what Vinny was doing, I can completely match what I played. That's easy to do. Mm. Um, so, you know, that's, pretty much how we did a lot of the stuff and we went back a couple one of the tracks i think we recut completely after the fact we just it just was missing a little bit of something and and i was i remember i was uh i was questioning it and then we said well we can actually get back to jeff's studio with um with chris jeff wasn't around but he allowed us to use his studio and then chris came down and we recut this one track now phil when i spoke to andrew um, yeah. w- one of the questions I asked him was because he told me he did a lot of his uh, vocals in his home studio. I said, when right. when you got sent the tracks, were you able to point to any of the tracks and say, yeah, that sounds like Vivian wrote that and that sounds like Phil wrote it. And one of the tracks he did single out, he said that a lot of the ideas he believes were from you was electrified. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't have the songwriting credits. Was a lot of it written as a band or a lot of the ideas yours you brought yeah, in? There's, there's no credits on there because we did it all, all completely together. Yeah. Honestly, that's how it went down. And to me, that's a, a fantastic a fantastic accomplishment because these days, that's not how people write anymore. You know, People write by coming in and saying, okay, well, here's a song I wrote and I've got a home demo studio and I cut a full production of the song and have a listen to it and Let's decide whether we want to do this or not. And um, from what Vivian tells me, that's kind of how it works in the leopard camp. Um, however, in this particular uh, situation, he made it very clear to me. He said, you know, don't bring anything pre-recorded or pre-written. We're just going to jam and we're going to see what comes out. And so that's exactly what happened. We, The three of us went into a room and started playing. Um, Electrified was one of the first if not the first track I think we wrote. And it was for a riff. You know, I came up with the, the basic riff mm-hmm. and started playing it with Vinny. And uh, Vivian walked in. He'd just been a few minutes late and he came in. He said, oh, that sounds great. Let's work on that. And and that's we started literally piecing the whole track together that way. Wow. And all the songs were done that way. Wow. That, that makes it's, it... It's, it's, it's very, very... That's um, what I'm looking for. It's a very cathartic way of working. Mm. It it ma- it also makes it, it also makes it work in a live setting because if you're jamming the songs that way, you, you, they'll transfer out into the live setting pretty easily. Yeah, I think so. I think so because people inject their own personality into even in, into the writing of the song. Mm. 
it's, it's very, you know, it, look, when I, I look at writing a song like having a conversation, you know, if I'm making a monologue, eventually it's going to get a little bit one-dimensional and, and repetitive. But when you're working three out of four other people, you know, it's like having a conversation and new ideas develop, uh, evolve and, and new ideas come out. So then when we come to performing those songs live, we have a, a deeper connection to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I wish I wish more people did stuff like that. It's just, just not done that way anymore. And that's how it used to be done. That's hmm. how Zeppelin did it and that's how all of these bands did it. Yeah, yeah. So, so Phil, I, got, I just got a couple of questions before I leave you go. Um, a couple of weeks ago, um, I sat down and I watched a Randy Castillo documentary. And mm-hmm. I have to say it was really, really well done that they brought out mm-hmm. him as a person really well in an interview and all his family. That must have been great on one level to do it, but to sit down and watch it when it was done, it must have brought a lot of emotions to you. Yes, it did. And uh, I went to the premiere of that they had in New Mexico in Albuquerque at the, at the uh, unfortunately named Chemo Theater, which is in Albuquerque. Um, it was, you know, it was very a, a very uh, moving and emotional time. You know, there's probably not a day I'm go, it goes past, and I don't think about Randy. We were very tight, and we were very close. And I felt that his story, while it was a great success, was also a great tra- tragedy as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I feel, it makes me feel bad. Mm. Um, and so, uh, but I'm glad that they did that movie, and I'm glad that the way they did it as well. Um, because uh, it was uh, it was very well done, and there was a great contribution from people um, who knew him better or, or less, and it it portrayed him in a very in a, in, a, in a very favourable light, and the, it also brought out the most wonderful things about him. Yeah, definitely you know? did. So, so final question, Phil, before I leave you go. Um, when you did the Ultimate Sin tour with Ozzy, um, you would have done a lot of dates with Metallica. Um, I'm just wondering, did, did you get to know Cliff Burton well at all? Because normally, absolutely. guys, oh, you did. Okay. Yes, yes, absolutely. And in fact, sadly, he had pa- he passed on that tour. I mean, they were supposed to come back and do more shows with us, and they went to Europe. Okay. But um, what would you like to know about Cliff? Um, did you get to see him play a lot? Like as a as a bass player yourself, how good was he? Uh, you know, I, at the time, I thought it was, you know, the, the the style of music was a little bit over the top. Um, and, uh, I mean, looking back on it, I think he was a tremendous bass player. He had great ability. He was very dexterous. Uh, he could play really well and he was very creative. Mm. But if you recall coming from Ireland, you'll know that Metallica actually started building their, their base in Britain for a good two, three years before they ever played, uh, broke in America. Mm-hmm. We were already quite familiar with that, with their music. So that, for that reason, I would go out there and I'd watch it. And it was a very different style of music in America at that time. Mm. Did, so, w- was he someone that asked you for advice? Or did you just like have a few beers with him and have a laugh with him? Or how did those conversations normally go? He was very funny. He was very um, kind of um, um, uh, what's in- introverted. Okay. He would sit around. I mean, he was he was very very much like a bit of a hippie. He was a bit like Neil in the Young Ones in a funny sort of way, <laughs> in a nice kind of way. Because he just sort of sit there and just kind of, you know, um, just he was very quiet. Mm-hmm. Almost had to sit down next to him and say, "Hey, how you doing?" And you know, uh, we'd have those kind of conversations. But we, we we weren't talking about gear. We weren't talking about playing or or anything like that. You know, he was just a very cool guy to hang around with. 
And I remember one time he was all pissed off because they wanted to cut his bass solo out. <laughs> <laughs> and he said he was he was mad. He was mad. He said, "You don't want to cut my fucking bass solo out." <laughs> and, uh, I, I think they might have done that for one or two shows, and then it came right back again. And it was a it was a highlight. I mean, people just didn't do those kind of bass solos. Yeah, yeah. So, so Phil, do you want? He never turned around to me and said, "Hey, we got a guitar solo, we got a drum solo. Do you want to do a bass solo?" It was just like. Now, the worst thing about the drum solo is that when it finishes, there might be a bass solo. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so Phil, do you want to give out all the social media sites where people can get in touch with the band? Of course. So, um, of course, there's, there's my site, which is philsusan.com. But then, of course, the band is lastinlineofficial.com. Mm-hmm. And they can also go to our Facebook page, which I, you basically do a search for, for Last In Line Official. Mm-hmm. We're not too hard okay. to find. And uh, we've got Instagram, which is at Last In Line Rocks, I think it is. And uh, you just do a search for Last In Line, all this stuff comes up. And right. uh, there's a Twitter account as well. So, yeah, please. Uh, uh, I, the, 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 the best place to get all the information in a centralized location is lastinlineofficial.com, our main website. And from there, there's links to everything else as well. So. Okay. Well, I have to say, Phil, the, the album's excellent. Uh, Thank it you is, very it, much. You've heard, you've heard the whole thing, and I'm I'm glad that you have. Yeah, and um, I'm home to go see you guys in May, so I'll, hopefully I'll get to say hello again to you. That would be terrific. It would be nice to see you again, Rich. Yep. All right, Phil. Well, have a good rest of the day. I know you've got a lot of interviews. You too. You stay warm, okay? I will. I'll try. Take care of yourself. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Bye. All right. Big thanks to uh, Phil for coming back on to focus on metal once again. I mean, it's been uh, what eight years ago that he was on the show. So, uh, well, holy crap! You know, it's amazing. As the last couple of shows, when people have come on back on the show, and I'm looking back to see what episode that they appeared on, and uh, wow, I look back and it's like, oh yeah, I forgot we had that guy. I forgot we had him. We had forgot we had that artist. We had that producer. It's it kind of all runs together after this many years, but I'm glad that uh, the great guests keep on coming. So uh, as Phil had alluded to, the uh, Last in Line boys will be out on tour. So by the time that you're listening to this, they will be four dates into their U.S. tour. And uh, at this point, they're in uh, the home of Coors, Golden, Colorado, playing the Buffalo Rose. So they'll be uh, hitting a few dates in Colorado, out to Vegas, through California, then they'll be back on the East Coast in May in uh, Wonton, New York, going all the way through New York, Poughkeepsie, uh, Buffalo, and then uh, hitting some dates in Pennsylvania, one in Virginia, and they'll be winding it up on uh, Sunday, May 12th at the Greasy Luck Brew Pub right here in uh, New Bedford, Mass. And you heard Phil talking about some of the uh, Pledge Music debacle merchandise, and some of that is still available, at least when I'm putting this together, up at Last in Line Official. So if you have any interest in that, then uh, you want to go head up that way. But no matter what, you really need to go pick yourself up a copy of Last in Line 2. Just another solid release from these guys. As Phil even says, the songwriting is really coming together and uh, another great album from these guys. And if you want to have even more insight on The Last in Line 2, i got to tell you that anybody who uh, goes online and goes to Guitar Interactive Magazine, the uh, issue that came out in early February, issue number 63, has a great interview with Vivian Campbell. It's all a big feature on uh, Def Leppard and Hysteria. There's a great interview with uh, Phil Collin as well, with a lot of good stuff about his signature Jacksons and stuff. But again, there's another one with uh, Viv, and he does talk quite a bit about... 
putting together Last in Line, and also about Phil even coming in the band. So another uh, another good interview. You can kick back and watch that for 20 or so minutes and just learn everything you wanted to know and more. So that will do it for another week of Focus on Metal. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoyed everything on this week's show. And uh, if you want to keep up with us, you can go, as I mentioned before, focusonmetal.net. All of our past episodes are up there. You can also go to focusonmetal.blogspot.com where I'll post some show notes every week, put a little video or something else from the bands we're featuring. And uh, you can also, of course, talk to Richie on Facebook and you can hit me up on Twitter. But for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, Remember, focus on metal. Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.